if you would stay standing with me, and we're going to go ahead and read our passage. This morning we're in James chapter 5, starting in verse 15. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open there. James chapter 5. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. If you were here several weeks ago, recall that we did part one of a two-part series called Living in a Rhythm of Repentance. And um, we looked at Psalm 51, we looked at the prayer of David, and we, we observed that repentance, the word repentance as the Bible uses it, really just means to so fundamentally change our thinking that it changes our direction, to so change the way we're thinking that it changes the way that we're living. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That is a picture of repentance, having our minds transformed that we would no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. We said that repentance is both a command of God, but also a gift of God. In fact, the scripture says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. And so grace always precedes repentance. God's grace does not come in response to our repentance. It leads our repentance. But just as grace precedes repentance, grace also follows repentance. And so living in a rhythm of repentance is living in a rhythm of grace. We were reminded by the Puritan writer John Owen the seriousness of this issue. He said, you ought always to be killing sin or it will be killing you. The seriousness of this issue of sin and repentance I think can't be overstated. And so I, I, think, um, I think you're supposed to open a sermon with a joke, but instead I'm going to tell you a heartbreaking story because this is imminently serious. And so I, I read recently Brennan Manning, he's, a, he's an author, uh, he was a self-described lapsed Catholic and perpetually recovering alcoholic. He tells a story of being in rehab, in one of his stints in rehab, in the mid-1970s up in Minnesota, and there was a guy in his group named Max, and during group therapy one day, Max was in the middle and the, and the counselor was talking to Max, And he said, Max just refused to deal forthrightly with his addiction. He just wouldn't be honest about the impact and seriousness of his addiction to alcohol. And so Max just continued to explain and justify and evade. And then finally, the counselor kind of cut through all that and said, Max, has there ever been a time that you've been unkind to your children? And Max just painted a picture as though he was a perfect dad and there had been no real bumps. All of his kids were doing great. And because the counselor didn't believe Max, the counselor actually called Max's wife on the phone and said, here's what Max is telling us. Do you have a different perspective? 
And through tears, she described how just a few months earlier, Max had taken his nine-year-old daughter on an errand on Christmas Eve. On the way back home, he stopped off at the local tavern that he frequented, went in for a drink, and when one drink turned into eight, he finally stumbled back out, had forgotten his daughter in the car. By the time they got to her, she was so severely frostbitten that she had to have a few fingers amputated and she lost her hearing. Max was unwilling to recognize the depth and fierceness of his sin. He wouldn't deal with it forthrightly. And it cost him and his family severely. What are we talking about when we're talking about sin and repentance? We're talking about lives being at stake, marriages and families being at stake, futures stretching into eternity being at stake. So in part one, we talked really a kind of theology of repentance a little bit. And today I want to touch on some patterns and practices. Um, I, want, I hope that this will be a practical outline, a kind of how-to guide for living in a rhythm of repentance. So as we look at this passage, I see at least two primary categories of patterns and practices recommended to us. The first is having a posture in prayer, and the other is having a particular posture with people. And so here is the thesis. Our posture in prayer and our posture with people will determine our rhythm of repentance. Our posture in prayer and our posture with people will determine our rhythm of repentance. First, a posture in prayer. Prayer will be utterly central to living in a rhythm of repentance. And I would venture to guess that it will be nearly impossible to escape a rhythm of repentance if we're living in a rhythm of mature, sincere prayer. Prayer is essential to repentance. Look at the, the passage here, what James commends to us. He says in, chapter, in uh, verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. By the way, here and a few other places in the New Testament, it's made clear to us that sometimes physical sickness results from our sin. Not always, but sometimes. He goes on. And if he, the one who is sick, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now when we talk about prayer, we're talking about something that's a little complex. And if you're like me, it's actually a little difficult. I'm a modern American addicted to technology, I've got an ever-shortening attention span, easily distracted, substantive, meaningful prayer for long stretches can be challenging. And so when we talk about having a posture in prayer, I want to actually talk about some of our postures in prayer. So first I want to talk about having a spiritual posture in prayer. Um, the church being 2,000 years old, we've got some cool Latin phrases that have hung around. One of them that you might have heard or seen, sometimes uh, Private uh, high schools will name themselves after this, this phrase, and it's coram deo. Coram deo, it means before the face of God. It's talking about how we live our lives before the face of God in view of God, not hidden from God. And then in, in, the, in the Reformation, which is a turbulent period in, in church history, but some great things came out of that. And one of which was the concept that we live our lives not only coram deo before the face of God, but also under the authority of the scriptures alone. The scriptures are the authority for our life. So in this passage that we read, if, if you look at verse 17, the author makes 
a reference to Elijah. Now, for you to get the reference, for you to understand the allusion, A-L-L allusion, not I-L-L, if you were to understand the reference, you have to understand who is Elijah. What did he do? What is he talking about? And so you'd have to read the Old Testament to understand the story of Elijah. Similarly, in verse 19, he says, if anyone wanders from the truth, well, how are you going to know if someone wanders from the truth? How are you going to know if you wander from the truth? You have to know the truth, right? You have to understand the plumb line to understand what deviates from the plumb line. Recall that in 2 Timothy 3, it says that all scripture is God-breathed, that it's useful for teaching the truth, for rebuking those who stray from the truth, for correcting those who stray from the truth, and for training in righteousness. There was an Italian Catholic bishop in the 18th century. Because he's Italian, I can't actually pronounce his name. I tried last night. I told, I told my wife the name, and she goes, that's not even close. That's not how you pronounce that. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll, I will omit his name. But uh, we'll leave it at the fact that he was uh, a Catholic bishop. Here's what he said about this idea. He said, in this experience of opening ourselves to the gaze of God, that is the quorum Deo, in view of God, in this experience of opening ourselves to the gaze of God, we must be prepared to deal with definite sins, that is, specific sins. A generalized confession may save us from humiliation and shame because it's it's not so hard to confess generally that I'm a sinner, but it can be quite hard and embarrassing to confess specifically how I'm a sinner. He says that generalized kind of confession will not ignite inner healing. Our spiritual posture in prayer, as in life, needs to be yielded to the presence of God, quorum Deo, before the face of God and under the authority of the scriptures. So in your posture of prayer, in your room, in your car, on the treadmill, wherever it is that you find yourself most often praying, that is not merely a solitary meditative experience. That is communion with the God of all creation. And so as we commune with God, we want to understand the importance of our posture in prayer, our spiritual posture in prayer. And then also, let's talk about our physical posture in prayer. Now, this is just totally practical. This isn't hyper-spiritual. This is just really practical. It's an ergonomic question. What does your body look like when you're praying? Are you standing? Are you sitting on the edge of your bed? Are you kneeling? Are you running on the treadmill? What is it that you're doing with your body as you pray? Now, here's an interesting thing that we know. Sometimes our, our heart leads the posture of our body, doesn't it? For instance, I don't know if you watch March Madness, but we've got college basketball going on right now. When, when a Cinderella team, the underdog, hits a game-winning shot at the buzzer and wins, what do the players do instinctively? They start jumping up and pumping their fists and dogpiling. That wasn't premeditated. That wasn't them contemplating, what's the posture of my heart and how should I respond with my body? It's just instinctive because sometimes our heart leads the posture of our body. Similarly, if you ever watch a movie where, say, you see a police officer go to someone's front door to deliver some tragic news, what happens to the person receiving the news? They crumple to the ground because sometimes our heart leads the posture of our body. Sometimes, though, we need the posture of our body to lead the posture of our heart. Sometimes our heart is cold and uncaring and not well aligned, and we actually need the posture of our body to lead the posture of our heart. And so as you pray, what's the posture of your body? When we look at the 
when we look at the Bible's treatment of the posture of prayer, it gives us all kinds of really interesting insights. Let me give you a few examples. James 5, the, pa- the passage we're in here, it talks about the laying on of hands. That is, as we pray, occasionally it's appropriate to put our hand on someone that we're praying for with an appropriate touch as we pray for them. Genesis 17, Luke 5, talks about being prostrate. That is, lying on our faces before God. Sometimes as we pray, we should be on our face before God. Romans 5 and 6 talks about standing as we pray. Ephesians 4 talks about sitting as we pray. Exodus 34 and Ephesians 3 talk about bowing down as we pray. As Jeff does when he leads us in the Lord's Prayer, he gets on his knees. The scripture supports being on our knees and bowing as we pray. John 17 talks about looking up to heaven as we pray. 1 Timothy mentions holy hands being lifted high in prayer. If you're new to Wood's Edge, you don't come from this kind of church tradition. If you see people in here as we sing, lifting their hands, if that feels like weird or, or uh, new to you, just know that the Bible does actually talk about lifting holy hands in prayer. It talks about dancing as we worship. That is a posture that it commends to us. Um, how about this one, right? The uh, my, my, my dad, who's like 73, he, uh, he started getting into emojis. So when he texts me, he, he sends emojis as well. And, and he sometimes gives me the hands. And, and he's saying, I'm praying for you, right? So like this is the universal sign for prayer. So it's slightly cliche. It's like this is the church and the steeple and we open it up and there's the people. And this means prayer. But historically, this posture actually is a sign of surrender, right? Like you're cuffed, you're, you're surrendering, similarly with our hands clasped. So even in the, in the most recognizable kind of cliche posture that we do with our kids at the dinner table is a posture of prayer that has meaning. Historically, oftentimes people in the church, when they would pray to receive something from God, God, I receive your kindness, I receive your, your love, I receive the identity that you speak over me, I might pray with my palms up in a posture of receiving. Similarly, If I'm praying a prayer of surrender, God, I'm turning this over to you. I'm giving you my anxiety. I'm laying down my life. I'm I'm submitting my will to you. I might pray with my palms down in a posture of surrender. So to the degree that you're physically able, I would encourage you to consider as a pattern in practice, as a practical approach to living in a rhythm of repentance, to adopting various physical postures in prayer that can involve your whole body and will oftentimes actually lead your heart. So as we think about posture of prayer, we're talking about spiritual posture. We're talking about physical posture. I just want to mention emotional posture. And by emotional posture, what I mean is having a readiness to encounter God. To have a readiness to actually encounter the living God. Not just religious ritual. Not just form or formality. But coming with the genuine expectation and readiness to encounter the God of all creation. Having that emotional posture. I've been reflecting recently um, on on this interesting phenomenon that happens oftentimes when we encounter God. Um, Now, I might be, I'm kind of a wimp, but I'm not a crier per se, all right? But I've experienced this phenomenon as I've encountered God, where I'm, I'm overcome by the Spirit of God to the point that I just begin weeping, in fact, just a, few, just a few weeks ago, I sat through a Wood's Edge service super awkwardly, like weeping for 40 minutes straight. And I wasn't being mawkish. I wasn't being hyper-emotional. I was just encountering God, and the natural result was to be brought to tears. And it's a, it's a strange phenomenon, especially for those of us who aren't 
prone to crying necessarily. So as I, as I surveyed the Bible a little bit and looked at the word weeping, passages in the Bible where the English translators use the word weeping, and there's two primary instances that we see of weeping in the Bible, two categories. One is where there's death, and the second is sin. So let me give you a couple of examples. 2 Samuel 12 King David is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And after he's confronted with his sin and the Spirit of God convicts David of his sin, David weeps. Psalm 137, the psalmist there weeps, remembering the suffering of Israel because of the people's sin. Nehemiah 1, the prophet weeps as he prays a prayer of confession and repentance. Ezra 10, the prophet prays, he makes a confession, and he weeps. Uh, the Apostle Peter in Mark 14, you remember when Peter, when Peter denies Christ? Once Peter goes on to reflect on his denial of Christ, of his sin, do you know what he does? He weeps. Jesus in Luke 19 stands overlooking Jerusalem and considers his people's rebellion and his response is to weep. Revelation 18, we even see an angel weeping at the fall of Babylon because of the people's sin. Uh, there's a, a guy named David Wilkerson who wrote a book called The Cross and the Switchblade back in the 70s. They actually made a movie about it as well. He wrote about this phenomenon. I had forgotten this passage. My wife recently reminded me. Listen to what Wilkerson says about this. So, backstory. Wilkerson was a pastor, I don't know, somewhere in middle America. And he hears this story in New York City where a violent gang of youth have assaulted or maybe murdered somebody. And these kids are on trial. And he senses God say to him, David, you need to go share the gospel with those youth. And so he goes up to New York City, tries to find him so he can tell him about Jesus. Uh, he ends up staying in New York and working with gangs, and this is what he's writing about. He says, in working with gangs, strangest of all, they were afraid that something in the rally, a church service he was holding, might make them cry. Bit by bit, I came to realize the horror these young people have of tears. What is it about tears that should be so terrifying? I asked them again and again, and each time got the impression that tears to them were a sign of softness, of weakness, of childishness, in a harsh world where only the tough survive. What instinct was it that told these boys and girls that they might have to cry if they came into contact with God? I continued inviting them to the rally, and everywhere it was the same. You're not going to bug me, preacher. You're not going to get me bawling. Yet I knew from my work in the church how important a role tears play in making a man whole. I think I could almost put it down as a rule that the touch of God is marked by tears. When finally we let the Holy Spirit into our innermost sanctuary, the reaction is to cry. I've seen it happen again and again. Deep, soul-shaking tears, weeping rather than crying. It comes when that last barrier is down and you surrender yourself to health and wholeness. If your deep emotions have never been stirred by contrition, sadness over your sin, arising from the awareness that you've violated the holiness of God himself, and resultingly because of Christ that you've been extended the forgiveness of that same God, then it, it might be, I'm not saying that it is, I'm saying that it might be that you've never truly repented. Contrition alone does not equal repentance. Being sad about our sin is not the same as repenting. But true repentance is impossible without contrition. We cannot truly repent in the biblical sense without experiencing contrition, brokenness of heart because of our sin. And weeping, of course, is neither a necessary 
nor sufficient condition for becoming a Christian. Weeping, even about sin, does not make you a Christian. And you can be a Christian even if you've never wept. So that's not what I'm saying here. But as I've surveyed the Bible, as I've reflected on my own experience, and as I've observed the experience of others, I would suggest that if your emotions are not submitted to the Lord and your affections are not viscerally stirred in his presence occasionally, you might want to ask the question, what evidence do I have that I have actually encountered the living God? Not just encountered religious motions, not just that I've gone to church or I've attended Bible study, but I've actually had an encounter with the living God of all creation. Just a question you might ask. So we talk about spiritual posture, physical posture, emotional posture, being ready and eager to encounter the living God. Our posture in prayer is going to define the way that we live in a rhythm of repentance. And also our posture with people. And what the passage is talking about here is a relational posture. It's talking about being mutually accountable, about speaking the truth in love. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If we're going to have a posture with people that lends itself to a rhythm of repentance, we're going to need to be a truth teller. We've, we've got to be a truth teller. Paul in Ephesians 4 says that speaking the truth in love is a sign of Christian maturity. And James here in chapter 5 says he's exhorting us to turn sinners from their wandering. And if we're a sinner, that someone would turn us from our wandering. I've got a, a buddy, lifelong friend, and I was with him a few months ago, and he said something to me that made me believe that he might be entertaining some sin in his life and allowing it to nest and take root. And that that particular kind of sin would be very destructive to his family and to his life. Now, I don't get to talk to this friend very often because he lives in another city. So when we talk, I want it to be a good, encouraging, happy conversation. Right? I don't want it to be awkward. I don't want to come across as self-righteous. But because I love this man. I love his family. He and I have both expressed a commitment to loving God and following Christ with our lives. I called him and I said, hey man, I need, I need 20 minutes to talk to you. Can you make time? And so we set up a phone call and we got on there and I, I just confronted him about this thing. And I started asking him some hard questions because I want to be the kind of friend who's going to be a truth teller. And I would want him similarly, if he suspected that there was sin creeping into my life that was going to jeopardize my life and my family, I would want him to love me enough to talk to me about it. Revelation 3, Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Love has that kind of expression and relationship. So we want to be truth tellers, but we also want to be confessional. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Richard Foster wrote The Celebration of Discipline. I mentioned that book last time. If you haven't read it, I'd, I'd encourage you to put it on your list. It's a classic. Here's what Foster says. He says, the discipline of confession brings an end to pretense, that is, to pretending. God is calling into being a church that can openly confess its frail humanity and know the forgiving and empowering graces of Christ. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't get the sense that there's a ton of bird watchers here. Maybe there are, and I just I don't see you out there, but... 
When we lived in New York, we go to Central Park. And if you go to Central Park ever, you, you may see in the springtime or summer, these groups of people huddled up together with binoculars. And they're all like looking up at the same apartment building together. And at first you're going, what are, are these peepers? What are these people doing? This is strange. And, but no, they're actually just looking at an eagle's nest up there. And so they get out and they, and they look at birds together. I'm not much of a bird guy. I don't know a ton about them, except they're tasty. But I learned about a bird recently called the southern giant petrels. And I've got a picture here. I don't know if you know this bird. But it's an Antarctic water bird. The thing that's interesting about it is it's got this really unique defense mechanism. When it feels threatened by a predator or by some unwanted presence, its response is to projectile vomit its putrid stomach oils onto that thing. And so sailors who would encounter these birds came to call those birds stink pots. Just a really nasty creature that... But, but I think it's a pretty vivid picture of us, though, isn't it? Because oftentimes what we do when someone confronts us with our sin is that's, that's what we act like, right? We just start to projectile vomit counter accusations and defenses and explanations and evasions. So, no, 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 that's not what I'm like. That's what you're like. No, no, you don't understand the pressure that I'm under. If you understood the pressure I'm under, you understand why I did that. You're blowing this out of context. It was just one time. Have you ever said stuff like that? We're tempted to just projectile right onto the person who's confronting us, but the Bible, however, exhorts us to respond in the opposite way, to receive that word with humility, to receive a hard word from a friend, speaking truth and love, to receive that as a kiss, as a blessing. In fact, Proverbs 27 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Profuse, disgusting, like the putrid stomach oils of this bird. That's the kisses of an enemy. That's flattery. That's saying, no, 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 you're great. No, no, that's totally okay. Excusable, understandable, sure. We're just human after all. Don't receive that. Rather, be humble and confessional so that when someone, spouse, friend, family member, the Holy Spirit convicting your own spirit, that you would respond to that word of truth with humility and confession. That's what the Bible calls us to. When I called my friend and had this conversation with him, he responded with total grace and humility. He didn't have to. And in fact, if he had called me in the same way, I don't know that I would have. And if Paul says that being willing to speak the truth in love is a sign of Christian maturity. I would say that an even higher sign of Christian maturity is being able to receive the truth in love, to receive that word in humility and confession. So we want to be truth tellers. We want to be confessional. As confessional people, I'm just going to get really practical here. So this is like how to, just brass tacks, life stuff. What patterns and practices are we talking about? Here's one. Apologize early and often. I was reading about uh, Tammany Hall, like the corrupt politics in early 19th, or 20th century New York. Chicago was the same. Right? You've heard these stories of, you know, someone would get elected as mayor or governor or, or city council, and like 50% of their votes would be from people who had been dead for 20 years, you know, this kind of corruption. And these politicians, when they were campaigning, allegedly they would, they would have this phrase, they would encourage their constituents to vote early and often. And that's really bad illegal advice for voting. You only get to cast one vote per election. But it's great advice for apologizing. Apologize early and often. Now, as a practical point, as we apologize, um, here's something that, that I think can be helpful. 
before we confess and apologize to the person with whom we need reconciliation, we would apologize to God. We would confess and repent to God. Recall that in Psalm 51, David prays, against you, you only have I sinned, God. And we said, well, wait a minute, that's not true. You sinned against the whole nation of Israel. He was speaking hyperbolically because what he was recognizing was, God, most fundamentally, I've sinned against you. Most egregiously, God, my sin is against you. And so if we start in a place of repentance and confession to God himself, it grounds our heart and makes true our confession. Then we aren't tempted to simply um, offer an apology just because we're conflict avoiders and we don't, don't want there to be tension, right? We just want things to be okay again. So start by confessing to God. Secondly, um, take a moment to reflect on the, on the value you place on the relationship and the attributes of the person that you value and love. Now, I know in marriage, there are times when I know that I'm wrong. I've been wrong, and I know that I need to apologize. And you know what happens to my heart? It just freezes. My heart just becomes stone, and my lips are just, what, just, they're just glued together. You're not going to get this apology out of me. You can't open my lips with the jaws of life. I'm not going to apologize. Just feel everything in me resisting. I even remember as a little kid, I remember a time when I was probably six years old, I was nasty and obstinate and, and, you know, bratty to my dad. He sent me to my room, and I remember sitting there and, and saying to myself, I know that I'm wrong. What I did was terrible, and I need to go apologize I'm recognizing cerebrally, I need to go apologize, and I cannot get my body to move. I don't want to give it. Have you ever felt that? So, in that moment, when the Spirit convicts you, when your spouse confronts you, when your, whatever, coworker talks to you, try this. Just take a minute to reflect on the value of that relationship in your life, and think about and give thanks for things that you love about that person. I value my marriage. This is the most important relationship I have in the entire earth, and I love my wife, and I love that she's creative, and I love that she's funny, I love that she's patient, and as I reflect on those things, you know what happens to my stone-cold heart? It just starts to melt a little bit to where my, my lips loosen up, and I can, I can now get into a mental and emotional space where I can offer an apology. Now, I'm not trying to give a false impression here that I do this all the time, that I'm perfect. I'm just saying that theoretically, that's something that could work if I were to actually try it. <laughs> So confess to God, reflect on the value of the relationship, and then here's another just super practical. Take ownership for what you've done and apologize in first-person language. It goes like this. I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry that I X, Y, and Z. And resist the temptation to apologize in second-person language where we say, I'm sorry you felt that way. I'm sorry you took it that way. I'm sorry that you're not emotionally mature enough to deal with this situation. (laughs) But because I'm the bigger person, I'm going to offer the apology, right? Super disingenuous. What we're doing there is we're taking the blame and we're just shifting it subtly onto the other person. Just resist that. First person language, I take ownership, take responsibility. Apologies go much better that way. And then the last thing I'll say, just as a practical point, if we're going to live in a posture with people that gives us to a pattern of living in a rhythm of repentance— Let's be authentic. Let's be authentic people. Talked to a guy at work recently. He invited a friend to church. Guy wasn't really a churchgoer. Shows up at church. Guy sees him afterwards. He says, well, how was it? What'd you think? And this guy says, well, to be honest, I didn't love it. I probably won't come back. I said, oh, why not? He goes, well, 
I, I came into the foyer here and I just saw so many like beautiful, perfect families and just all these happy, clappy people and whatever was perfect and beautiful in my life, I ruined a long time ago. And so I just don't, I just feel like I stand out here. I don't really fit in with this crowd. And so that's, that's an interesting observation. But then he said something even more interesting. He said, and I don't do well around hypocrites. And so on one hand, he's very intimidated by all these smiling, happy people with the perfect family and perfectly coiffed hair and well-dressed and seem to have it all together. And on the other hand, he also can just sniff out really easily that there's some hypocrisy there. And so here's what I know, being a family man. When I come in and I see some of you beautiful families in the foyer and I'm tempted to be intimidated by how put together you all are, I I resisted because I know that 15 minutes ago you were just like at each other's throats in the minivan arguing about all kinds of stuff. You didn't do the hair right. You're not wearing the right thing. You know, my brother touched me. All that stuff. It's like things blow up in the minivan and we regain composure. We go into the foyer and... We're happy, clappy people. Everything's great. How are you? Great. Let's just have the freedom to be authentic because here's the deal. We're all, we all become wise enough eventually to sniff that out. And people who aren't in the church can, they can sense it. You know, you know what guarantees that we aren't hypocrites if we're confessional? You can't call me a hypocrite if I just told you that I do that. If I tell you that I'm really messed up, you can't say, you're a hypocrite, you're all messed up. I know, I just told you that. (laughs) Actually, I have integrity, right? I'm doing what I told you. So, be authentic, be a truth teller, be confessional. Here's some closing questions. What posture of prayer do you have currently? Is it leading you to a rhythm of repentance? To whom are you mutually accountable? Your posture with people. Who is it that you're good enough friends with that you can be a truth teller, that you can call them on their sin? When they're wandering, you can remind them. Who is it that you're good enough friends with that you allow them, that you give them license to call you out when you're being a jerk, when you're being uncaring to your family, when you're giving yourself immoderately to something, technology or drink or sports or whatever it is? Who is it that you're telling the truth with for the sake of Christ Last time we talked about repentance. We're talking about repentance here again, part two. Part two of two. Last, last we're going to talk about it. Recall last time we, we did the general confession together. This is something out of the Book of Common Prayer. A lot of liturgical churches around the world do this every week as a pattern and practice. Um, I know for some of you, it probably felt awkward and uncomfortable. Some of you who maybe come from liturgical backgrounds, maybe it was great. Um, we don't do this at Wood's Edge much, and we may never do it again. But I just thought today we might do it once more together. This is a pattern and practice, by the way, if you find it helpful, the Book of Common Prayer and some of the structures in there can be used, not just in a Sunday gathering, but also in your Bible study, your home group, in your living room with your family. Um, and so if you would, if you'd stand with me, uh, we're just going to do the general confession once more together. And here's the way this goes. I'll invite us to confession. Then we will have a moment of silent reflection. We will just consider our lives and ask God, God, what are you inviting me to repent of today? Because recall that repentance leads to our freedom. What freedom are you inviting me in today, into today, God? And then together, we will make this confession. The words will be on the screen. We'll read them together. I'll remind us of our forgiveness in Christ, and then we'll pray. So let us humbly confess our sins unto Almighty God. Take, Take a moment of silence.
and now all together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant us absolution and remission of all our sins, true repentance, amendment of life, and the grace and consolation of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of repentance and the grace that you've worked into our life, that out of your kindness, you lead us to repentance. God, help us to see clearly today that the sin in our life is for our ruin and destruction, not our delight. And help us to see today, God, that our repentance is for our delivery and our freedom. So God, we, we yield to you our minds and we ask that you would change them by the power of your spirit, by the truth of your word. And that as you change our minds, that you would help us to actually change our steps, to reorient our lives and our behavior. God, we want most of all to live in joy and freedom and the fullness of your gifts for us. God, we receive your promises today that you are for us, that you are with us, that you will not forsake us, and that you will carry us safely to the end. So God, together we confess our sins, we confess our freedom in you, and thank you for all the goodness that you've shown us in Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.